It's time now for Illinois Innovators, spotlighting the leaders in research, technology, and entrepreneurship from the engineering at Illinois community. Welcome to another edition of Illinois Innovators. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Today, we're coming to you from the second annual Illinois Health Data Analytics Summit, which is bringing together healthcare providers, industry representatives, and academic researchers. We're going to talk to a handful of thought leaders in all three areas to discuss how the field is changing and how the Midwest and Illinois are primed to lead the way. We're joined by Michael Suter. He's the Chief Enterprise Clinical Solutions Architect at Carl Foundation Hospital. And one of the things that I, I find fascinating here as we advance in artificial intelligence and, and, and big data when it comes to medicine is really the impact that it has on uh, less populated areas, rural areas, uh, and areas that aren't uh, major cities. Uh, absolutely. The goal really is to ensure that patients who are living in, in a rural community, which quite frankly, although Champaign-Urbana is not as Chicago, we're certainly not as big as Chicago, and we do have a lot of rural farming communities, to ensure that those patients have the same standard of care as if they lived in Champaign-Urbana or if they lived in Chicago. The concept of what big data or AI does, in fact, it determines based off what limited resources we may have, where do we need to focus our attention for those particular patients in those rural areas, and what can we do for them to ensure that they are receiving that same standard of care. Talk about the kind of the on, on one end you want as much information as you can on the other end you've got privacy issues when it comes to individual patients uh, you know talk about that dynamic a little bit. So I need to think. Oh. <laughs> so we talk about patient privacy um, clearly, we have a lot of safeguards in place to determine patient privacy, as you probably noted in the last speaker. Um, we actually uh, ensure that patient information may or may not be associated with some of the data that we look at to ensure anonymity. We also have protections built in place when we share data, particularly mental health data, where we do not share mental health data with other institutions or other large databases because we want to ensure patient privacy. So talk about uh, the, the Carl Illinois College of Medicine. Obviously, you're heavy involved in that. Um, what has that meant for, for Carl Foundation Hospital? Well, clearly what it has meant for Carl is that when you look at an engineering-based um, College of Medicine, it quite frankly will hopefully in the future determine some of the more advanced technologies in advanced care. For example, uh, we look today at brick and mortar clinics. Maybe in the future it's all virtual care and that College of Engineering will hopefully develop what techniques and maybe what software or devices can be used more in the home where in fact we now treat patients virtually as opposed to having them come into a brick and mortar uh, location where they may not have transportation particularly go back to the previous questions about rural health well guess what if we could do virtual care and we can we can provide that same standard of care without the patient having to drive 60 to 70 miles there is no doubt we'll provide better quality care in the future so expand on that virtual care what are we talking about so for example today we have um, MD live there is also other telemedicine type where as a patient maybe it's eight o'clock at night and I don't I the convenient 
care clinics may be closed. I don't want to go into the ED. I can actually go on the website. I can actually um, create an account. I can, for example, meet with a physician uh, virtually, and depending upon the symptoms that I have and perhaps the diagnosis, um, I might be able to receive care through that mechanism rather than actually having to present to an emergency room or to a convenient care. So they can di- di- make a diagnosis and maybe uh, give you a treatment or pr- do a prescription? A- absolutely correct. Uh, there, is, uh, there is also a, a company, a couple of companies actually, where you can actually, uh, they send a device home. You can actually draw your blood in the house. You could actually send that back in. Based off that blood work, you then could set up a virtual care visit where, again, the patient doesn't necessarily have to drive 60 miles to come in and actually see the physician. Probably where, particularly in a rural health area, where the patients may not have the ability to drive that distance, maybe they don't receive the care they could have received. So really, hopefully, what the College of Medicine does in the future is to come up again with those type of criteria where patients will be able to be treated more in the home environment and perhaps not have to visit a a true, what I would call a brick-and-mortar clinic. I would think anecdotally, uh, you might have a more people that are willing to, to that maybe uh, didn't want to go into the uh, doctor's office, think whatever problem they're having is not that serious, but they want to get it checked out, they have maybe a better chance that they'll get it checked out more often as opposed to you know, having to make the appointment and having insurance pay for the visit and, and all the tests that they would have to pay for. Absolutely. No question about that. If you look at the studies, particularly when you look at tetramelicin, you find out that, in fact, patients uh, will actually attend a telemedicine visit more reliably than they will if they actually have to drive uh, to uh, actually visit an office. And access to care changes as well. So, for example, maybe if I want to make an appointment with my primary care with a specialist, maybe I have to wait a week or maybe I have to wait two weeks and normally I would have to take off from work to be able to make that appointment. Well, if I'd be able to see that same specialist or that same primary care doctor at night where I wouldn't have to take off work, not only do I not lose income, then I'm more inclined to uh, make that appointment and to be able to keep that appointment as well. So convince me on reliability of that because, you know, as a skeptic, maybe I'm, I want somebody to see me and, uh, you know, uh, look at all the symptoms that I have. How do you convince somebody that, that this type of care is reliable? That's a good question, and I think uh, as, as anything within medicine, not every solution fits every patient. I think there are those select patients who I would say uh, – are very good to as relating what symptoms they have. Not all patients are. Sometimes it's the physical presence that the physician sees. For example, what type of gait do they have? What does their uh, skin complexion look like? Do they have any tremors, which of course you can't necessarily see with a telemedicine visit. But if the patient is very reliable in terms of presenting their symptoms, when you when you actually um, Uh, look at what patients are. You figure the patients have 90% of the information that you need as a physician. Uh, Certainly lab tests and x-rays also support and add to that clinical information. But ultimately, the patient has the information. We just have to elicit the information from the patient. Some patients are better than others. Michael Suter, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to having uh, see how this uh, particular thing grows in the future. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Joining us now, Justin Sterren. He's the uh, Chief of Health and Biomedical Informatics at Northwestern University and really enjoyed your talk. Uh, 
just talk about the emergence of research and clinicians. It seems like uh, I, I like your analogy of of having the, the middle ground to um, to you know kind of connect the two. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I think the way to think about the current state of electronic health records is, you know, I'm almost 60. If I think back to when we had, when I was six years old, we actually had electronic banking, right? I would take my passbook down to the savings and loan, and I would bring my quarters and my nickels and make a deposit, and they would put the passbook in the line printer, right? And the mainframe would compute my compound interest, right? So the bank numbers were computerized. If you think about how long it took from, you know, 1965 until you could use your credit card in Europe, and then how long it took after that to where the credit card company will call you up and say, we see a transaction that looks funny, right? That was decades. Right now, medicine is roughly where the savings and loan was in 65, that we're taking the data that used to be on paper and we're putting it in a computer in a institution. Then taking that data and connecting it across institutions, right, and then using that to do computerized surveillance on a large scale took banking decades. We're trying to do it in a couple years. So it's not surprising that we're not moving as fast as some people thought we would. But we do live in an era where supercomputers uh, are the thing. Uh, we didn't have supercomputers uh, as fast as they were in 1965, and I would guess that would speeding it up maybe a little bit. Um, oh, absolutely. I think the, the analogy might be telecom, right. um, where the countries that got cellular fastest were actually the least developed because they never bothered to pull wire. They just said, okay, we're just going to put up cell towers. So having the advanced technology does allow you to move faster um, but you organ you know healthcare is the most complex organizational corporate system in the world I mean Deming said that years ago so it's not something that's going to spin on a dime so we just need to realize, you know, manage our expectations to move at an appropriate rate. So when you talk about genomic data, uh, I think you made an analogy of, of how, how much data is coming out of one human being. Yes. Um, it just boggles your mind the amount of data that could be out there. If you, if you take a look at that in one human versus, you know, everybody in the universe. Um, oh, Absolutely. And the, the challenge with genomic data is that we are, how should I put it? We don't understand how it works. Um, when we started doing the Human Genome Project, right, we said, okay, we're going to find the mutations that cause disease and we'll be done. And we really focused on the coding regions that turn you know, DNA makes RNA makes protein. What we've learned is it's way more complex and messy than that. 
um, that in fact that 95% of the genome that we first called junk turns out to be the part of the genome that tells the coding regions what to do. And we've discovered there are more proteins in the human body than there are genes in the human body. Turns out that a coding region for a protein in the gene isn't actually just one-to-one. -one. It's much more like a set of Lego blocks. And depending on what's going on, the human body will rearrange how it assembles a protein out of the genome so that you actually produce more proteins than there are genes. Um, and that's all controlled by regulatory structures. It's controlled by 3D structures where two parts of the genome that may seem to be very par far apart, you fold it and you stick them together. Um, so we only understand a tiny bit. To really figure it out, we are going to need data on millions and millions of people. Um, you know, just from a simple statistical standpoint, if you got six billion base pairs, you're not going to figure them all out with a thousand people. So I want to focus uh, first off on preventative medicine because I think this is really the, word, the benefit of uh, the information that you can get from me, from whether it's genomes or whether it's uh, DNA data or whatever, that you can figure, well, I am susceptible to a certain disease, and so I want to start treating it today, before, even before it metastasizes in my body, for instance. And, and this type of technology is, is coming around. So I think the preventative side may end up being the last frontier um, because we know that lifestyle affects our health far more than our genetic makeup. Um, and we know that people do a lot of things they know are not good for them. Um, so I actually think that as we start monitoring what people do, we may have more impact than looking at their genome. If you think about diabetes, right? Diabetes is in many ways, you could almost call it a willpower disease. Because what you're asking people to do is to give up a lot of foods that taste good, to go out and exercise, to do a whole bunch of things that aren't that much fun in order to prevent something bad happening in 10 years, like losing your foot or your eyesight. Um, human beings are lousy at that. On the other hand, if you're monitoring them actively and you're you know, sort of nagging them when they fail and praising them when they succeed, you can modify the behaviors along the way. Um, I think where genomics is actually probably going to have the biggest hit in the near future is in cancer care. And we're already discovering that the drugs that treat particular cancers and which ones succeed are really driven by which genes are activated in that cancer more than where the cancer is in the body or what it looks like under the microscope. And we're now, you know, at Northwestern, we're working with Tempest. We have a genomic tumor board where they're sequencing tumors, they're looking at which genes are activated, picking drugs based upon the genomic profile of the tumor, and 
having much more success than simply saying, oh, it's a breast cancer, let's throw this drug at it. And the other, the other impact uh, from an in individualized medicine perspective, you take all the factors that one person has and, and um, you can make much bigger individualized decisions about how to care for that person as you kind of alluded to that rather than say well, this person has this and so here's the overall treatment right. that we do for every patient who has this. Mm -hmm. uh, it can be much more individualized because of the data that, that we're able to, to uh, gather and, and be able to read and, and you know, make that assessment. Absolutely. I think if you look at drugs that supposedly failed, right, drugs that went into clinical trials, they said they didn't have enough effect, um, we're not going to bring them to market. If you actually look at the data for every one of those studies, there were a group of patients who responded great to those drugs. It's just that that group was too small to move the average. Mm -hmm. Or there was a small group of patients that had horrible side effects. Um, we know that response to drugs, we know that side effects, both are pharmacogenomically driven. So I think what we will see is we'll move to an era where for most diseases, there will be multiple drugs, and the drug that you are given is based on your genotype, um, which will both improve the effectiveness and decrease the side effects. Because there are a few, few drugs that are on the market, um, azithromycin, I believe it's azithromycin, um, where a particular genotype greatly increases your risk of a severe side effect. So it's now a warning on the drug that you don't give this drug without checking that gene. Um, I think that's the future. That's going to be the norm, that this idea that you have a drug that you can just throw at the whole world and it'll work for everybody and not cause anything bad, it's probably not going to happen. Well, I'm going to wrap up here because it seems like the Midwest is kind of poised to be a leader. Uh, and you are Midwest at heart from Washington University. Um, to Columbia, to uh, Northwestern. So just talk about this particular area and how can the Midwest be a leader in, in this area? So I think that the, one of the advantages of the Midwest in the genomic era is the population. That we come from small towns where people know they have to work together and I'll share a lesson from the Marshfield Clinic where I was for a number of years. It was the first genomic bio, large genomic biobank in the country. And we wanted to make a small change to the protocol. And the way the biobank was set up, there was an expert advisory panel and there was a lay advisory panel. There was people who were actually 20,000 people who've given their genomic information. It was about using the blood that gets left over when you get a routine blood test. We sh showed that to the expert panel. They said, this is horrible, this is unethical, you should go to jail. We took it to the lay panel, and they said, let me get this straight. You're throwing away my blood. Well, I didn't know that. I'm not sure I like that. But then you're telling me you can use this blood 
you were throwing away anyway to do better science in a study I already consented to. Why are we having this discussion? <laughs> and it is that Midwest pragmatism and the realization that people participate in research, frankly, to make their children and grandchildren healthier. And that community perspective, I think, is uniquely Midwest. And as we said earlier, it takes huge numbers of people to do these genomic studies. So I think that the general Midwest ethic um, of thinking about community and thinking about helping your neighbor is going to position us very well for the genomic future. Justin Theron, uh, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. Our next guest is Khan Siddiqui. He's the co-founder and chief technology officer with Higgy, and uh, I'm, I'm really fascinated by uh, the the uh, devices that you're creating for that that are appearing up in in retail shops and pharmacies and things like that. Can you just talk about the, the technology and uh, things that are emerging from your shop? Sure. Thank you for inviting me. This is a great pleasure to be here. Um, and as as Michael you mentioned, um, uh, I'm the co-founder of Higgy. Uh, Higgy really is a published health enablement company. We focus on the consumer and helping them uh, capture, interact, and act on the data, as well as on the uh, on the provider side of things, where we provide solutions to know, uh, reach, and manage their population. So anybody taking risk on population, such as health plan, large self-insured employers, or even a health system, uh, who are trying to understand uh, their population, reach them, and manage them, and we provide those solutions. So if you go to a pharmacy, you see those blood pressure kiosks. So these are now connected kiosks. Uh, we are about 11,000 uh, retail locations in the U.S. right now. Uh, we, are about, we do about 4 million screenings a month. So uh, in the last six years, we've done pretty good in expanding it. And um, about a year and a half ago, we got into population health, and we built applications that are integration in workflow integration into Epic, into Salesforce Health Cloud, into other EMRs, uh, McKesson uh, pharmacy dispensing system. So, so we're trying to close that loop on front ta- front door of retail, with uh, care plans and care providers to providing end to end published in health enablement. So not only are you collecting the data for the consumer, they're able to access that data in a variety of different ways. Talk about that. Absolutely, consumers can interact with the data on the kiosk, on the web, on the mobile. Uh, they can connect their wearable devices or home monitoring devices into the platform, and then this data, with their consent, goes back into uh, the clinical workflows. So uh, it's really empowering the patient as well as then providing access and closing the loop with the provider and the physician at the same time. So the cl- clinician could take some of those uh, readings and, and say, hey, you are a high risk for hypertension or, or something like that. Absolutely. That's what the clinician is doing. Like, for example, in our Epic App Orchard app that we've built in which clinician, clinician can go and order or prescribe Higgy which tells the patient how frequently physician wants you to go get your blood pressure check. And as they do it, it also generates alerts back into the physician's workflow or the care manager workflow who's managing that population to know what is happening to the patient. And they can respond and interact in real time as as patient is doing this. For patient, is convenient. They don't have to come to the hospital or clinic to get the blood pressure done. They don't have to go buy devices, figure out how to connect to it. Those who need to do it, they absolutely should buy devices and, and regularly do blood pressure, but those they don't, can they can go to their local pharmacy or grocery store and get the blood pressure done then. 
and data flows back into clinical workflows. So you <coughs> mentioned 11,000. Uh, so how, how widespread are they? Pretty much every, we have within uh, uh, five miles of 78% of the U.S. population today. So we're pretty much everywhere. Okay. So you say that uh, clinicians or, or doctors will might subscribe Higgy to Correct. you uh, have to go in regularly and, and take these readings. Yeah. I mean, patients can then sh do it themselves and manage themselves, or that's what we call self-guided uh, management of their health, or they can be directed through a payer, through an employer, or through the physician themselves. So everything is recorded for them. They don't everything have to worry about writing it. I always remember... Uh, uh, when I'm taking blood, blood pressure rings, I've got a card that I carry around with me. I don't need to do that anymore. No, not at all. I mean, this is all measured data. The, our devices are FDA class two medical devices, clinically validated. Um, you know, some of these devices have been on for, you know, 24-7 uh, for the last six years. Uh, we've done almost 260 million screenings to date. Um, so these have uh, proven again and again. Uh, to be very accurate and secure. And absolutely, the whole, our whole idea is to get away from unstructured data and really provide real validated clinical structured data uh, that is useful for you know all sorts of applications in AI and, and big data anal analytics, prediction modeling, and things like that. So absolutely. Well, I know, as we heard in the, uh, in the panels, 90% uh, of data is unstructured so that is that the challenge as we go forward is just trying to take the data and and make some sense of it yeah i think um so my, my background has been in in data and machine learning and ai uh, aspect of it and plus i'm a physician too so i have a very, have had chance to wear both hats as a software as well as on the clinical side of things um <clears throat> even though there's a lot of unstructured noisy data uh, as um uh, other speakers talked about today that um, there's still value because you can extract those outliers away and really focus on the uh, unstructured data. But I think what I wanted to do was when we started Hagee is to remove that whole bias of, you know, this is manually entered data, so do we trust or not? So, you know, data trust is a big issue, especially if you're trying to rely on data coming externally. So having that validation clinically automated measured data coming back in. And then we do a lot of different things in our side of things to look for scenarios that we talked about, somebody talked about in the, in the, you know, like somebody losing 30 pounds in one week is impossible unless you had an amputation or something like that, right? So we, we use algorithmic detection of data inconsistency and prompt the patient to do it again or something like that. So ensuring that the data quality is good. So the computer is a valuable tool, but uh, doesn't necessarily replace some of the, uh, the human um, yeah, <laughs> evaluations, I guess. I mean, so so if we could start on that direction, I'll be talking for two <laughs> hours right now. I think as as humans, we are uh, we are born biased, right? So we are. It's very hard for us to predict things. Uh, we love to predict, but uh, evolutionary, we are designed to react on those outliers uh, rather than what is happening in the norm. So you know, sometimes I even think about right. If you look at look at healthcare cost, you know, your majority of your cost. Uh, cost, mort mortality, morbidity are top three diseases, which is hypertension, cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, and obesity, right? <clears throat> uh, but if you see a lot of the AI companies, they focus on oncology, which is less than 5% of cost. That is less than, uh, you know, 10% mor uh, mortality, whereas the three diseases, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, not only are, uh, uh, are the high cost, but they're not improving, right? If you look at year-to-year -year trend, Hypertension is still going up. November last year, 
uh, AHA and ACC change the criteria of hypertension. So on Higgy, for example, before that change on November 13th, 30, 30% of patients were in hypertensive. On November 14th, the criteria changed, 62% people became hypertensive, right? So we just doubled our hypertension population, did not increase any physician or provider capacity to manage that population. I mean, that's where your AI tools and data tools really, really would benefit from. Like, you know, you double the population that is hypertensive, something needs to happen. Right. Um, so what's the future look like? Um, I think f f I'm very optimistic about the future. Um, I think the future really will move in the right direction when patient takes responsibility of their care. So we are trying to do our part of empowering the patient. Uh, but, you know, the, the change really happens when, when normative influence is built. But what we mean by that, that, it's the norm for you to manage your health. I mean, think about smoking, right? Smoking used to be the norm in the 50s and 60s. Everybody used to smoke it. Now the norm is not to smoke, right? So that has changed, and the drastic change has happened really, really fast. It's also happening now in carbonated uh, drinks because of a lot of the policy changes that have happened and a lot of education that has happened that the whole communities and society has changed. I think that similar paradigm shift needs to happen in the patient, in the consumer community, to then you know patients believe in empowerment and actually take control of their health. Um, you know everybody needs to do their part, but it, it needs to happen as a social activity for it to really change. Well, I think it's exciting to think that maybe society is heading in that direction. Oh, absolutely. Well, uh, Khan Siddiqui, thank you very much for joining us, Khan Siddiqui from Higgy, and uh, we look forward to hearing from you down the road. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Our next guest is uh, Rich Karwana. He's a principal researcher at Microsoft. Before that, he was on the faculty at uh, UCLA and Cornell. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we're talking about some applied research. Um, so talk a little bit about um, the research that you've done in terms of um, the models that you produced and try to edit those models and, and things like that. Uh, you had a very entertaining session prior uh, to this interview, so I'll, I'll give you a, a give a chance to give a little Cliff Notes version, if you will. Sure, sure. So uh, we're doing interpretable machine learning for use in healthcare. Uh, healthcare is one of these mission critical domains where you don't want to make too many mistakes. So, you, so you want the model to really be as accurate as possible. And the example that we've been talking about is uh, a model that when trained on pneumonia data, ends up learning a lot of very good things. It's a very accurate model. But it also learns a few very wrong things, like it learns that having asthma, heart disease, chest pain are also good for you if you have pneumonia. Uh, and the reason why it learns that is because uh, patients uh, in the past who have had asthma, chest pain, and heart disease have just noticed their pneumonia sy symptoms earlier they notice the symptoms earlier. They get to healthcare faster because they've had a doctor who treats their other conditions. And then they get very high-quality treatment once they get there. And if you're going to get an infection like pneumonia, it turns out that noticing your symptoms early, getting to healthcare quickly, and then getting to high-quality care quickly are just like the magic bullets for, for, you know, recovering from your pneumonia. So it turns out it's real in the data that patients who have had a history of heart disease or asthma they really are lower risk, but they're lower risk because they get to healthcare fast, not because they're intrinsically lower risk. I mean, in fact, doctors tell us it's quite bad to have asthma and pneumonia, uh, you know, at the same time. Um, so then our model, because it learns that asthma looks good for you and heart disease looks good for you, because it doesn't really understand 
why mm -hmm. this seems to be a pattern in the data. Uh, the model is sort of learning things that if we were to use it to intervene in people's health care and suddenly say that, oh, you know, you have a history of asthma and heart disease. You don't really need to worry about the pneumonia. Don't bother going in for, for a quick test. Um, then it could actually hurt some patients um, by denying them the very rapid, high-quality care that was making them lower risk in the first place. The model just doesn't understand, you, you, you know, the history uh, the way a human would. So. so it's kind of combining the the human analogy with what the computer can tell us. So what um, being able to use it intelligently, I guess, is, you know, uh, maybe a, a more accurate way to, to talk about that. Right. So to the extent that the model would be an assistant, which might affect uh, – maybe the model doesn't decide, you know, how quickly uh, you'll get an appointment. But maybe when it gets there, it'll make a prediction that the doctor would see. And the doctor might see, oh, the model predicts that you're low risk or the model predicts that you're high risk. And to the extent that they might let that influence their own decision, then you'd like the model's predictions to be, you know, as correct as possible. And we don't want the model making the mistake of saying you're low risk because in the past patients like you got really high quality care very rapidly. We want the model to say, oh, you're only a low risk kind of patient if we still give you very high quality uh, rapid health care. And the model, unfortunately, is confounding these two things in a way that uh, – that the, the people who train the model, like me, might not have understood, um, if, especially if we can't understand the model. And also the users of the model won't understand this if they can't understand the model. So we really want to, want to know what the model is predicting so we can find these sort of mistakes or landmines that are hidden in the data. So from a macro standpoint, Microsoft in healthcare, just talk about the, the interest uh, that Microsoft, and obviously Microsoft research has been around for some time, but uh, it seems like uh, they're much more uh, hyper-interested in healthcare than maybe they ever, ever have been. Uh, so there's a, a – I'm in Microsoft Research, so I'm sort of free to do, you know, the research that I think is most important for me and ultimately for the company. There are lots of uses of this kind of interpretable model. So it, it also is useful outside of the healthcare setting for things like fairness and transparency. So if you're worried about a model being race-biased or gender-biased, you, you know, something like that, these same models that help us detect uh, bias in medical data also help us detect bias in other kinds of data. So Microsoft has many interests and uses for this kind of model. And then Microsoft independently has researchers um, in addition to me who work more specifically on healthcare problems. Um, I'm more of a sort of, you know, general researcher who this is one of the things that I do at Microsoft. But there are other people who do focus more on healthcare than, than I do. Yeah. So talk a little bit about, um, you know, obviously in healthcare, being accurate is much more important than perhaps some other fields and not that mm -hmm. we're uh, sliding them at all. But uh, when you're talking about life and death situation, accuracy is uh, is really important, but then also the speed in, in which you can read the data and and you know there's there's a there's a give and take there um, that still exists I would think in even in healthcare. Yeah, you can imagine a model which has really high accuracy, ninety eight percent accuracy, higher accuracy than any human would have, and it's possible though that that model makes certain kind of classic easy mistakes that no human would make. That is, it gets certain kinds of easy cases wrong, and yet it's doing really well on all the other cases, or else its overall accuracy wouldn't be so high. And in healthcare, care, um, 
that might put certain kinds of patients at risk, the kinds of patients for which you make, make errors. But also we have a sort of dictum in healthcare that, you know, if we already know how to treat a certain kind of patient, we don't really want to sort of adopt a new piece of technology, which would suddenly make that patient disadvantaged, but, you know, at the benefit of other kinds of patients. Like we want the model to help, you know, the old, older patients that we knew how to treat and the newer patients that we now know extra well how to treat. We, we want the model to do both. So and in some other domains, that could be less critical. I mean, if we're trying to, uh, you know, help you buy a product online, hey, if we're a little less accurate, uh, it might mean you're a little less happy as a customer. It might mean the company that sells the product is a little more or less happy. It could mean that you're a little less happy with our tools. But, you know, at least people probably aren't going to, you know, live or die based right. on the predictions of the model. Whereas in healthcare, I think to some extent in autonomous vehicle navigation, there are, there are some domains where it's really valuable to figure out, wow, here's all the places the model is doing very, very well at. Those are great because those really can help people. Um, and then here's a few cases where this model, despite being sort of on average very accurate, is, uh, is making some mistakes that we just consider to be unacceptable because we already understand how to do those things. And we need to fix the model in some way before we deploy it so that it's not going to make those mistakes. Yeah. Talk about the collaborations you make, because obviously as a uh, data scientist, you are dealing with clinicians and with researchers and things like that. Um, how, how does that dynamic work? Yes, so it's interesting. About half of the research I do is machine learning with healthcare professionals. And it's a very, uh, a very different kind of work. So what got me interested in machine learning for healthcare actually was as a grad student, I got asked to train this pneumonia risk prediction model. And what I really liked about the, the meetings and these kinds of problems was that everybody took it seriously. Um, there's a tradition in older machine learning especially where, you know, you download some test data sets, you train your model, you, you look to see if your model is a little bit better than previous models, and, and you sort of publish a win, and then you go on to the next idea, the next data set, whatever. Um, and in healthcare, people were very earnest about their models. You would never suggest that your model was more accurate than somebody else's model if you didn't really believe it because, God forbid, it might be used and, you know, suddenly injure some patients if it really isn't excellent in many ways. So and even though I trained this model uh, 25 years ago, that was the most accurate model we could train on this data set. I'm the one who said I thought it was a little too risky to use this model because we didn't understand, you know, how it was really working. And it turns out now that we better understand what was in that model, it turns out now in retrospect that was a great decision not to use the model because it had learned things like heart disease and chest pain uh, are good for you, things that we would now think were terrible things for it to have learned that we'd want to fix. And we just didn't know it had learned those things back then because it was, you know, a black box model. Um, so working with healthcare professionals is great because everybody takes it seriously. Like, like there's nobody anywhere in the entire process, the data collection, data cleaning, um, training of the model, evaluating the model, uh, trying to debug it, figuring out what it's good and bad at. There's nobody in any stage of the process who doesn't sweat all of the detail. You're not allowed to ign ignore issues. You know, as a researcher, I can often say, oh, we're going to ignore this and this. We leave that to future research. Mm -hmm. um, in healthcare, if you're working on a real problem and you might want to deploy this model, you have to address every issue that might 
really impact the use of this model and its accuracy in the real world. And I like that earnestness. I like the fact that you can't, uh, you can't hide problems under the rug. You can't pretend this isn't an issue. You, you really have to sort of just keep working at it until you've got it working well enough that you actually believe it's a genuine improvement over what would have been available if you didn't use it. So give us a, a little uh, look into the crystal ball, not too distant mm-hmm. future. What, what are some of the next things that, uh, that we can hope to see in healthcare as it, as it relates to the, the modeling we're talking about? Um, well, some of the magic that people are talking about with deep learning looks, looks like it's true. That, that is, deep learning on certain kinds of problems yields very high accuracy that we've never seen before in machine learning. Um, and the kinds of problems where deep learning is absolute king of the hill right now are images. So I can really believe that in five to ten years, we will start seeing a lot of imaging interpretation. This would be radiological things like, you know, x-rays, CAT scans, MRIs. I could believe that in five to ten years, we'll start seeing more and more systems deployed to interpret those images, either as an assistant to a radiologist, or in some cases, perhaps just replacing the radiologist. They might be they might be accurate enough once we deploy them that we actually use them instead of radiologists. So I think if there's anything that's likely to have impact in the short term, um, that's probably one of them. I think also all of this learning from all the data that we're collecting from uh, our smartphones and from you know devices that we can wear on our wrist, I, I think uh, this sort of you know focus not on illness but focus on health health you, you know how to prevent a person from becoming ill how to live a healthier life I think that'll also perhaps have some significant impact and there will be less regulation especially in the beginning that will to slow that down so so that'll probably happen too then in the long term I'm sure we'll start seeing a lot more clinical hospital assistance which kind of act as a second opinion for the doctor. I mean, I think there'll still be a doctor in charge of the vast majority of decisions for a very long, long time. But I could imagine that AI systems would start being sort of decision aids and that they would start providing either a second opinion or they would act as a safety net. You know, you've made a decision for a patient, and this thing looked through the patient's records and says, oh, you know, there's a possible interaction between the drug you just prescribed uh, and medication that the patient's already taking, we think the risks are high enough that it looks like there's another med that perhaps if you used it, it's almost as efficacious, uh, but the interaction risks are much lower. Right. Do you want to change the prescribed drug? And in some cases, the doctor will actually have had a reason for wanting to use that drug, despite the risk of interactions. And in other cases, the doctor you know, would, would say, oh, of course, no, 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 no. It makes a lot of sense for us to switch which drug we're going to use for this particular patient. So I think we'll see more and more of these decision aids and safety nets that just sort of uh, act like a person looking over the doctor's shoulder to sort of catch some things that the doctor might miss. I mean, doctors are incredibly time-pressured right now. I think their average time to see a patient is, you know, less than 10 minutes now, whereas uh, 25 years ago, my understanding is it used to be an average time to see a patient of 30 minutes, and if it was a new patient, 60 minutes. And none of us gets to spend that kind of time with our doctors anymore. So I think any sort of AI decision aid that can help the doctor, especially by doing the easier things um, and letting them pay even more attention to the, the harder stuff, that they'll, their expertise might, might be still uh, king of the hill for a long time. I think those sort of decision aids will be very useful. But I think they'll roll out more slowly because they're going to be in a clinical setting. They really will potentially have impact on patients' health care. 
Uh, and I think there'll be growing regulation of, uh, and standard practices that we're going to be expected to use with some of those decision aids. Fascinating stuff. Rich Carwana, our guest from Microsoft Research, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. Happy to, happy to be here. Our next guest is David Leibovitz. Uh, he's Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of Chicago. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Mike. Happy to be here. So uh, you're obviously in Chicago in the Midwest uh, and down here uh, in Urbana-Champaign. Just talk about, uh, in general, the Midwest as sort of a, a potential leader when it comes to data analytics um, as far as medicine is concerned. Sure. So there's a, um, both kind of the research realm and then there's also kind of the, the day-to-day operational needs for analytics. And in both these areas, the Midwest region is... Um, very much a, a, an important important center internationally as well. And in that context, we have um, several major medical centers um, in the Chicago region, many of whom um, uh, are moving up the quality rankings as well. Some of the organizations have been consistently high performers from LeapFrog, which requires the use of a variety of patient safety improvements and demonstration of their benefit at the organization. So with this, there's a lot of a, depend- a great dependency upon sophisticated analytics that organizations need to do to be able to both produce the data and continue to feedback and improve care processes. So that continues apace at medical centers in Chicago. Further, um, with a, um, a top engineering school at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, it's great that we're uh, continuing to explore, work together, and, and have kind of new collaboration opportunities. Well, you have the benefit of being on both sides because of practicing physician and um, being able to develop these uh, systems. So just talk about the, the um, things that your team has been doing to, to perfect and, and to, to modify and, and to roll out uh, new systems uh, that will make uh, healthcare better in the future. Sure. Um, the vendor's solutions available for electronic medical records right now um, uh, have been built with first and foremost functionality in mind, that they can do um, that which they need to do. Usability in terms of both from a user satisfaction perspective, error avoidance, understanding the context of care at the moment the system is being used, um, hasn't for a variety of reasons been given the same degree of emphasis as the utility, the actual functions of those systems. So a lot of what my team works on is trying to Um, design where we have leeway from the vendor solutions to help address aspects of usability and to design it in a way such that the um, uh, right thing to do is also the easy thing to do when taking care of patients in that fashion, while also being cognizant of the variety of biases as well as cognitive overload that users of such systems are always susceptible to. And so there's um, a, a long list of projects. So some examples are how we've designed our order sets. So there's logic running behind the scenes that addresses various patient characteristics. So if we could exclude potential options that shouldn't even be considered, those will be excluded. So it's kind of through those sorts of designs that we're trying to have it seamless in the workflow. Okay. So uh, how then does a physician, you know, get rid of all the the noise and and make sure that they are focused on the the one or two best options that they can make uh, the decision on their own. Yeah, this is tricky to do consistently in in all venues. 
And so there is still a need for a continued evolution in our analytic skill sets in terms of essentially being able to sift through the medical record to bring up for that particular individual physician, for that patient, at that moment in time, that which is most useful and potentially actionable. And that's where we're continuing to invest research resources as well as um, our kind of usability group um, from the design of our system before we turn things on to really help address that. But that's a problem that's going to continue to persist for quite a while. The other aspects are it's not only the moment in time for that patient, but even across populations of patients and teeing up actionable sorts of information. So that brings in, there's so many other industries that have uh, they've descended upon healthcare. They realize that the benefit they could have, such as uh, Amazon and, and IBM, and of course Microsoft Research has been there as well. Just talk about the, those players and, and the benefit that they could have for the healthcare industry and really uh, amplify what's already been, been going on. Yeah, there are a variety of disruption opportunities that exist within healthcare. Unfortunately, the reimbursement modes for healthcare make some of these changes uh, harder to um, implement than one would otherwise expect. In other words, if one can treat a condition remotely such that the physician or other um, advanced care provider in an office could see many more patients more efficiently than waiting uh, for patients to be physically brought into an exam room, sat down, um, have vitals taken, et cetera, before the physician then walks into that room. Um, inherently, there's so many different potential benefits from doing these sorts of services through telemedicine, yet in most contexts, telemedicine is not available for effective reimbursement at that level. Further, there are many disruptive approaches for managing, for example, the very common condition of high blood pressure, um, which is a um, major risk factor for stroke and, and heart attacks and deaths nationally. And we do a poor job at maintaining um, adequate control of patients with high blood pressure. It's been shown in studies pharmacists do a great job with this and can do this remotely. Unfortunately, without effective reimbursement models in place, that's um, a, 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 substantial eff a substantial barrier that stymies many of these efforts to implement um, and let new vendors enter this space in a more um, robust fashion. Where there are some potential opportunities is when there are population man management um, uh, payments so that uh, an organization has a lump sum to manage a population of patients and is charged with doing that in the most effective fashion possible. That's where these come to the fore. Unfortunately, um, there are many areas in the country, in the Midwest in particular, where that is not the rule. That is more the exception. So, you know, the other um, avenue that, uh, that I've heard about has been uh, monitoring, like you give a treatment um, option for the patient. Are they doing them? Are they, uh, are they following through with that particular treatment? Um, are there ways that are being developed so that the physician can remotely detect um, what's been, been going on at home um, with a particular patient? Yeah, there are a variety of initiatives to try to help adherence, and the adherence could be not only taking specific medications, but also various lifestyle behaviors, et cetera. 
And this is tricky because, um, for example, would the physician want to know for the 2,500 patients in his or her panel, every time one of their patients skipped a run one day, um, uh, probably not, um, or missed a medication dose, probably not. So it's partly um, designing systems that have the right signal-to-noise ratio and having reimbursement so that in many cases a care coordinator can assist patients um, such that physicians can practice at the, the highest scope of practice so that they can apply their professional expertise where it's required and these sorts of other um, adherence, coaching, motivation skills, which physicians also need to do, um, but doesn't always require a physician to do these, can be managed at a more population-based level. So those are some of the challenges uh, with it. Uh, before I go, I, I do want to mention uh, the Microbiome Center, uh, which you're affiliated with. Can you tell us a little bit about that and um, you know, the progress that's being made? Sure. There are enormous opportunities, and we know that um, the uh, organisms that exist uh, within um, uh, the intestines um, uh, actually affect the immune system, affect um, the uh, metabolism that uh, patients have, um, and thereby affect the proclivity to develop a variety of various disease states. And in that context, this is a ripe area for study because what are the best uh, prebiotics, foods that patients can eat that actually alter the microbiome in a positive way, what are the components that facilitate uh, effective survival of various conditions that require um, uh, dangerous treatments, such as other alternative chemotherapies and others, are there ways in which we can use this effectively? So this is overall an incredibly active area of research. In my role as a chief medical information officer, um, I can't wait until the time where we can actually have something more directly actionable for the patient care, but at the moment it's, it's focused on a lot of the, um, the basic research to establish the underpinnings that we can then apply back into uh, applied medicine. So more still in, in a little bit in the development stage as opposed to the actionable stage. So right. we look forward to seeing what that looks like down the road. Great. Thank you. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us, uh, David Levovich, uh, Associate Professor for Clinical Medicine at the University of Chicago, and thanks for coming down to be part of the panel and uh, also stopping to, to be on our podcast. Thank you so much. Our next guest is Jay Duig. He's the Director of Patient Integration at AVI, a research-driven biopharmaceutical company. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So uh, you know, talk a little bit about um, the concerns, the things that, that AbbVie is, is focused on um, that uh, is really helping out patients. Sure. Uh, AbbVie is one of the world's largest biopharmaceutical companies. We're located in northern Illinois. And uh, as a company, uh, we were split off from uh, Abbott Labs, which dates back to uh, the late 1880s. So, and um, AbbVie's mission is in service uh, to patients to have a remarkable impact through the development of novel uh, drugs, uh, a particular type of drugs that are called biologic therapies that are actually uh, living uh, components to have an effect in the human body and other um, medical devices and treatments to aid in the treatment, uh, amelioration, and prevention of disease. So talk about your group specifically. Uh, what, what do you focus on? 
Sure. My group is called Pharmacovigilance and Patient Safety, or really just the, the patient safety group. We're located in the, uh, the research and development function of uh, ABV, and in a very real sense, um, the uh, responsible for the safety of every single person that takes an ABV drug. Interestingly, we found as a matter of process and efficiency that really establishing almost that personal sense of responsibility has been our best operating model. That I work with over uh, 100 uh, MDs and then um, also um, advanced practice nurses, PharmDs, researchers that have their uh, degrees in, in advanced statistics and analysis to understand the use of AbbVie products, not just in the U.S., but globally and what the, um, the risks look like in taking those drug products, how people take them, and where potentially they can get hurt, and most importantly, how we, by design, can avoid uh, those, uh, those situations that may lead to harm. Well, in your time in risk communications, I'm sure that's, mm-hmm. that's a big factor, is that, that trying to get the, the uh, patient's the right information, but not only giving it to them, but making sure that they receive it uh, in the way that they're that benefit them because I'm, there's communication is a two-way street. You couldn't be more right, and that's been a central focus of uh, my own work. Uh, I'm a social behavioral scientist from the University of Illinois, uh, three times over uh, by training, and that really stemmed, um, you know, or really um, brought my interest of uh, what happens. How do people understand the the drugs that they're on? Actually, I'm a second generation. If we want to go all the way back, University of Illinois alum. Uh, my father. Patrick was a registered uh, community pharmacist and a graduate of the College of Class of 1961. And in community pharmacy is really one of the front lines throughout healthcare. People just walk right in and they have their questions and can talk and answer questions. Um, and in seeing my dad uh, go through and the care that he would bring in to individuals to try to understand, well, what's happening with them? Well, what, what, what's their needs? What are they really asking? That that spurred my own interest, and I was very grateful that through um, my studies both in um, UIUC and then uh, my graduate training at the College of Pharmacy, I was able to follow up on understanding those same issues that my dad would see one-on-one at the pharmacy counter on a mass population scale. As you said, how do people understand why I'm taking this drug? what the risks are, what it's going to mean for my life. And those are really the important issues um, when we think about of medicines being of value to people. What does this mean that I can do? How is this going to help me? Uh, and how does it change how I think about myself? Which are really a lot of fun areas and, are, again, are the, the I say fun from the problem uh, of problem solving because with if we think about all the differences we naturally have in terms of our experience with uh, medicine, our understanding of drugs, our differences in education, um, and in many ways those are the larger social scientific disciplines of health literacy and things like health numeracy 
cultural competencies, um, language access, meaning do can I hit, talk to a provider that you know speaks my native language and I may understand those little cultural components that can make a big difference in, in what uh, I'm understanding from what the doctor is saying. And so how do we as AbV and my group as patient safety uh, identify those issues and identify some of the systemic threats that can potentially harm people? Comes down, I would guess, to customer service, whether that's customer service in packaging or having an individual that can can answer very specific questions for a patient. It, it really is, and it's customer service to the patients and also to the physicians themselves. I mean, healthcare globally and not just in the U.S. is so challenging. Uh, the demands placed upon physicians, upon staff, and um, in my own experience, in my pro- both professionally and personally, um, the, the doctors and the, the office staffs that uh, we work with take what they're doing and that challenge as a very real and personal thing in their own right, that they're going to be their best self for that patient, that they're going to deliver on the patient care. And in pharmacy, as you know, a long history of America's most trusted profession, that they're going to live up to that trust that p- patients place in them. AbV's role is to do everything we can to help make that happen at the clinician and at the patient level and do that first by developing what are novel and innovative medicines that can make a difference where uh, there's clear evidence that shows the benefits can outweigh the risks and where those but those risks always remain that's a big part of what we talk about of patient safety there's no such thing as a zero risk treatment mm-hmm. so but through understanding and characterization of those risks in ways that are meaningful to people. That's where we can add a great deal of value. And in particular, in doing that as a matter of process, what we think about is meeting the person, be it the doctor or the patient, as who they are, not expecting them to do something extraordinary or expecting them to know what we, um, or by creating the educational tool, that then that will translate into their behavior. But instead, think of through on our responsibility of creating products and systems and services, as you said, a customer and services platforms that can meet their needs by its own design and that we can track uh, that type of patient experience through outcomes, learn what works and what doesn't, and put ourselves on a process of continual improvement to to get better and to, to hopefully treat more people and do so more effectively and safer. Well, in that light, we live in a very uh, analytical system where there's, there's a lot of uh, analytics out there. So how does what you do play in fr- from an analytical standpoint? Sure. Thank you. Uh, our model uh, that we have in patient safety is something that we published in a recent article called the, uh, the Future of Safety Science. And what we really see with um, the amazing advances in health data analytics uh, that, were, that have been over the past uh, couple of decades and are going to continue and even advance uh, more quickly is the interplay between data science medical assessment, and the cognitive behavioral sciences. And really what that combines to is understanding all the different data streams that are available, how the answer are 
research questions and patient safety questions of interest and how we can uh, understand and evaluate that data and then communicate it um, uh, as uh, my training in um, uh, pharmacy systems and risk communication, it, uh, that becomes um, what can be an overlooked but is an absolutely essential step. The best analysis or the best uh, data in the world is of no value unless it's effectively communicated. Yeah. And again, when we think about effective communication, it's not assuming the other party is going to understand what we're talking about. We think about things even at a provider or an expert uh, level of in terms of plain language. Is someone, and by plain language, what I mean is, is the other person going to understand this the first time they hear it or the first time they see it? Mm -hmm. And if we can think through that standard in communicating, we can have a great effect, even if we don't always get there. So if you constantly, as a matter of process, apply that, so it can be very helpful. That's a good, great way to look at it. If you look, look at the Venn diagram is where all these three intersect, mm -hmm. um, becomes effective, you know, uh, use. The usefulness for the patient. Absolutely. And that's really what we'd like to understand is from um, in making the idea of patient centricity or human-centered design real and impactful. Those are easy terms to say, but as a matter of process of analytical um, uh, data evaluation and uh, of drug either in drug development or in post-marketing safety when a drug is on uh, the market and being used globally, how do we understand in real-world terms what patients usefulness and and how potentially um, we can better inform them of um, about their experiences and the experiences that of other had others have had to improve either the patient's outcomes directly and uh, by proxy clinical decision making Jay Duig from AbbVie thank you for joining us thank you so much thank you for joining us for this special edition of Illinois innovators from the Illinois Health Data Analytics Summit Revolutions in big data analysis are shaping healthcare delivery worldwide, technologies that can analyze, classify, and manage patient data and outcomes. Today, we gave you a glimpse of how research, industry, and healthcare providers are working together to benefit the patient. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Mike Kuhn. Illinois Innovators is a production of Engineering at Illinois. All rights reserved. We invite you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or SoundCloud by searching Engineering at Illinois. We hope you'll help grow our corps of listeners by leaving a favorable rating on iTunes.